Welcome to episode one of Multilingual Mamas. I'm Lauren. And I'm Sara. And today we're going to dedicate our very first episode to what multilingualism is not. Uh, we wanted to focus on this for our first episode because there are a lot of ideas about there in popular culture about bilingualism. So how we're going to do this is we're going to divide today's episode into three parts. First, we're going to talk about some of those myths about bilingualism or multilingualism. In the second part of the show, we're going to talk about uh, personally, our personal ideas about bilingualism and how those have changed. And the last part of the episode, we're going to dedicate to just some clarifications and some important terminology uh, as we move forward with the podcast. All right, so we're going to get started with um, uh, a total of 13, sorry, 14 uh, myths that we want to discuss today about multilingualism or bilingualism. They apply to both. And number one would be bilingualism is a charming exception, but monolingualism is, of course, the rule. Wrong, right? So according to some recent statistics, um, it looks like uh, about 60% of the, the global population is bilingual. Uh, myth number two, learning two languages or as many languages uh, confuses a child and or is detrimental to academic success. So there's lots of research out there on this that shows that if you measure a bilingual in both of their languages, you know, they hit all the same milestones as monolingual children at the same time. Um, and even if it, there is, if you're talking about English language development in the US, even if there is a little bit of a delay during elementary school in testing scores, um, that that disappears you know, certainly by high school, usually by middle school, they've caught up to their monolingual peers, even in terms of English language development. Okay, our number three would be real bilinguals never mix their languages. Um, this is in fact wrong. Um, real bilinguals can or cannot mix languages. It really depends on the linguistic context, the situation, who they're talking to. Uh, it is very common for bilinguals to mix languages, and that's uh, actually known as co-switching. Um, but it really depends. It really depends on the context who they're talking to, and it's not necessarily something bad. Yeah, good to hear, because I do that all the time. <laughs> um, the next myth, number four, you can tell a real bilingual, real in quotes, uh, from their pronunciation or from their slang or from the number of idioms they know or from what language they dream in people have these kind of arbitrary tests to determine whether someone is a real bilingual um and this just this idea that we want to exclude as many as people as possible from the bilingual category and that's not what bilingualism is about we uh, define bilinguals or multilinguals based on usage so if you regularly use two or more languages, then you are a bilingual. You don't have to pass some, you know, esoteric um, random test of pronunciation or uh, dreaming in the first language. I remember when I started dreaming in Spanish, it was way before I could actually speak Spanish fluently. And I thought, right. mm -hmm. you know, this, this was supposed to be like the ultimate test of bilingualism, but really it's just um, 
a silly test that people like to exclude people to use to exclude people from the bilingual category. But bilinguals are all different, all have different skills. Some have, you know, perfect pronunciation, some have accents in one, two, all of their languages. And it's, you know, there's no one characteristic that defines all bilinguals other than using two or more languages. In fact, I think there's a lot of research showing that bilinguals do have an accent very often, right? Yeah. So our next one. So a real bilingual learned two languages from birth and speaks both of them just like a native speaker would. Not true, right? That's not always the case. In fact, it's, it's rare to find this kind of bilingual. Um, you can be a bilingual and not have heard or spoken the languages from the beginning, right? So you can be a bilingual, like in my case, and I guess Lauren's case too, mm -hmm. right? So I didn't, I wasn't exposed to a foreign language until I was eight years old. And I do consider myself bilingual right now. So there are different contexts, different situations. Um, and it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't have to be the case that you were exposed to the two languages from birth. Um, and of course, you don't have to be a native speaker in both of them. This will, as we will talk about it later today, uh, this will change um, drastically depending on where you are, where you are in your life, potentially, and also in what context you are speaking these languages, right? Um, I am a native speaker of Spanish, fully immersed in English right now because I live in the U.S. And sometimes I do feel like I don't sound like a native speaker of Spanish. So yeah. Yeah, it's it's complicated, and you know, yeah. you get used to using one language with certain mm -hmm. vocabulary or certain people and it's really hard to use. So when I, when Victoria was born, learning all the child vocabulary in Spanish yeah. was a new domain for me, like learning how to say, you know, peekaboo in Spanish or, but yeah, but your languages just naturally separate like that. There are things that you know how to say right. in, in Spanish that you don't know how to say in English and, and vice versa. Um, so next one is number six. Oh, I like this one. Bilinguals have split personalities. You hear this one a lot that, yeah. um, that when you are speaking one language, you, you know, are more aggressive or more affectionate or, um, or whatever. And really what people are getting at here is more uh, biculturalism or multiculturalism. So if I am, if I adjust my behavior when I'm in Spanish, it's not because cognitively speaking Spanish, you know, changes my behavior. It's because I am also aware that Spanish is, I associate Spanish with a different culture. So maybe I adjust my behaviors because I'm good at reading a room. Just to add to what you said, Lauren, right there, I think it's interesting. You could be perceived as more rude in Spanish just because uh, interacting with each other in a conversation is more accepted in the culture. Whereas in English, you don't do that. Oh, I've learned to not do that the hard way. But um, so that that could be like one of the things that people um, perceive as a personality split. But yeah, but it's definitely not, you know, any sort of mental disorder or <laughs> things uh, like that. Okay, number seven. All right. So bilingual children are great translators. Definitely not. I I assume this. I, I'm going to be honest. I thought this was the case of like, if you're bilingual, you're probably going to end up being an interpreter or a translator because it's the easy thing to do. And I don't think that's true. I think this has to do with um, how often sometimes you're used to switching between languages. I cannot talk about my experience, but I can definitely say my husband ended up doing this. He grew up bilingual and he ended up being an interpreter. Um, but in his um, in his experience growing up, he did have to do a lot of interpreting for his mom 
So this became something very natural for him, and he did switch between between languages a lot. I personally am a terrible translator. Yeah, no, it's definitely a, a different skill. Just being bilingual doesn't, you know, mean that you know every translation equivalent. It's something that you've had you had to learn the language that way, uh, and you have to have a lot of overlapping domains in which you use the language. So if you, for example, if you only use English at work and only right. use Spanish at home, you might not you know, have a lot of overlapping words where you know the same words in both languages. So no, definitely doesn't guarantee um, that you're a good translator. All right, number eight, uh, minority, this is important for us parents, minority language use at home hinders majority language acquisition and or assimilation to the majority culture, in this case, American culture. Uh, and I kind of touched on this earlier, but you know, that's just really based in fear um, a lot of Americans wow. fear immigrants and that people won't assimilate, but it's not borne out in the research. Uh, over all of American history, there's been a pretty stable um, three-generation shift to where first generation is minority language dominant, second generation is bilingual, and then third generation is English dominant. And this also kind of plays into the idea that you can't be bicultural. You can't um, fully accept American culture while maintaining your home culture. And that's just not the case. We know that, that you can do both. You can love American culture and embrace that while still uh, incorporating uh, aspects of your home culture. And that's part of what America is. America doesn't have a clear uh, American culture or doesn't have an official language. So uh, saying that you aren't adapting to an American culture is kind of a silly thing to say. All right, so let's move on to number nine. A child who grows up in a country where a language spoken will have no issues acquiring that language perfectly. So this is not true. It's not a guarantee, right? There's so many ingredients that go into acquiring a language perfectly. And um, definitely one of them is receiving that input. You gotta get that in, be able to speak it and understand it. Uh, but just, just living in that country doesn't guarantee that at all. You have to socialize. There's so many things that go into it. Uh, education, whether you are schooled in that language or not. We do know that sometimes behind doors at home, it's like a whole different world, especially for bilinguals. So you don't know what's happening. You, you got to go out there and socialize with people in that country to get that input in. But yeah, do you want to add anything to this, Lauren? Yeah, just I think it's really important that you say it's about that input. And because this comes up for me a lot when I talk about my research with bilingual children, um, monolinguals have a really hard time understanding why children growing up in a home where Spanish is spoken, for example, um, need Spanish help at school, or why they won't just learn it automatically, why it isn't just like given to them at birth, and you know, it's automatic. It's all about that input. If your parents also speak or understand English, and you never need to use Spanish outside the home, you know, it's not a given that any language spoken around you will be acquired perfectly. You have to consistently um, have that input and output, have a need to use it. Exactly. And that just reminds me of uh, this idea that uh, if you put your kids in front of the TV, yeah, the language too. So input is not the only yeah. factor. Right, Lauren, you got to use that language. You got to engage with it somehow. If not, it just it won't happen. So again, just don't put your kids in front of the TV and just assume they will learn by watching Dora la Exploradora, right? It's just not going to work that way either. Yep. Um, next one, number 10, we're on. Yeah. Uh, oh, people who speak a language other than English in public 
cannot speak English or are trying to hide something from me. Okay, so um, again, another myth based in kind of fear of, you know, for the foreign. Um, but there are a lot of variables that go into language choice. So it could be that um, one of them is bilingual and the other one isn't. So they have to speak the foreign language for one of them to understand. It could be that they're talking about a specific topic that is easier to talk about um, in one of their languages than another. Uh, you know, most likely it has nothing to do with you and most of the time people are not talking about you um so maybe just chill out a bit and don't assume that um that just because someone is speaking a foreign language that they're talking about you or you know even if they're talking about you saying something bad about you these are a lot of you see these viral videos go around a lot where someone calls someone out for speaking a foreign language and then they you know kind of reply that of course, I speak English just because I'm not speaking English 100% of the time doesn't mean that I don't. So, And we're going to talk about this in, in other episodes, but it's really hard when, when you're bilingual and you said one language with one person, it's really hard. Yeah. So sometimes I do that when I'm, when I'm outside in the park with my, my kids, I'll talk to them in Spanish. And if I have some friends or some people are looking at me weird, I'm just be like, yeah, I just, I just talk to him in Spanish. I'm not, I'm not saying anything <laughs> Yeah, because um, yeah, you just you're just doing what 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 is natural to you, you know. You just you're not you're not trying to hurt anybody. It's just it is what it is. It's your dynamic. Yeah, and protecting that input for your for your child. True. All right. So number eleven, it's too late. People can learn a language after X age, right? That's not true. When I was in grad school, um, I was doing an eye tracking project, and we were looking for uh, very highly proficient Spanish speakers. But they had to be second language learners, which is someone who learned, um, in this case, Spanish after age 18, approximately. So we were looking for like people who were married to Spanish speakers, people who are really, really proficient in Spanish. And one of the people that answered our recruiting uh, email was a professor who had retired like last year, I think, uh, back then. And he was 72 years old. And uh, so he came into the lab and he did all the tests that we, we asked bilinguals to do. And one of them was like a proficiency test in Spanish. And he scored the highest, 72 years old, and he was the most highly proficient Spanish speaker I had ever encountered. So it's never too late. Um, number 12, languages cannot be lost. So, or the idea that bilingualism is stable. So if you learned your two languages from birth, you are bilingual and you're bilingual for life. And that certainly has not been my experience. You know, it seems like every year every month my my dominance is changing that my use language use is changing how much i use each language and what context i use each language um and the research shows that you know your two languages or however many languages are always affecting each other and and like you said earlier sarda that um all bilinguals have some sort of an accent or some influence of their other language, even at the earliest stages, even if you're a native speaker, you know, I know that my Spanish influences my English for sure. Mm -hmm. All right, number 13, one parent, one language is always the best option or the best way to raise a child bilingually. Not true. This happens to be my choice personally. Um, at my household, we're doing that. I'm speaking one language to my son and my daughter and my, my husband is choosing another one. But this might not be 
the best option for other people, right? So it depends on the context again. Like if you are, in my, in my particular case, it happens that um, the language that my husband speaks to my kids is not a language that I'm very proficient in. So I'm not comfortable using it. And I'd rather he is the input that my kids are getting, right? So that really depends. But I know, I think in Lauren's case, it's different, right? Yeah, so um, both of us speak Spanish at home. Um, before Victoria was born, that was kind of our language of choice anyway. So it's most natural for us. Um, but a lot of people do that in the U.S. because English is so dominant. You just try to give as much minority language input Spanish and right. as you can at home. So that's what we're trying to do is all the Spanish that we can, can at home, knowing that, you know, English is going to come at her from, you know, all sides as soon as she goes into daycare and as soon as, you know, she starts watching TV and um, listening to pop music and, and whatnot. And just to add to this that you just said, I think it's interesting going back to our I think it was myth number three about mixing languages. I bet that sometimes parents mix both, right? Like they're getting their kids exposed to this mix of languages because you can't help yourself. Yeah, just I, I also just want to express that parents shouldn't feel, you know, guilty for any language practices. If you and your partner only speak the minority language and, you know, your kid is trying to learn English at school, um, you know, that's a way for it to work too. You don't, just because you don't necessarily speak the majority language doesn't mean your kid won't be able, won't be able to learn it. There are a lot of ways to, to skin a cat metaphorically. Right. And in my case, like I said, we do the one parent, one language approach. But funny enough, my son is already mixing languages. So it doesn't matter what you do because <laughs> your kids are going to do whatever they want and good for them. That's true. That's true. Um, all right. Last one. Only rich people can raise their kids multilingually. Um, I think uh, some people have this idea that, you know, you have to buy a special class or pay for special trips for your kids. And uh, you really don't. You know, most of the world's bilinguals come from bilingual societies or uh, immigrant families. And there's research that shows that, um, you know, at the end of the day, <laughs> language exposure and language use is what matters. Even sometimes above, you know, language attitudes. So for example, a, a lot of wealthy families say that they value bilingualism a lot, but then at the end of the day, they don't expose their kids to as much minority language input as, you know, more humble families who say, you know, I just want my kid to learn English. I don't care about, you know, my home language as long as they learn English, but you know, at the end of the day, their kid is surrounded by more minority language input and actually becomes more bilingual. So it's not, it's not a prestige thing. It's not a fancy school thing. It's just using the, your family members and the people around you and your community and um, trying to make those connections so that your child can, can um, use the language as much as possible. Exactly. No special books required. Exactly. So we just talked about um, what bilingualism or multilingualism was not. Now, why don't we move on to what we personally thought what bilingualism was initially and what we have learned so far. Do you want to get started with that, Lauren? Yeah, so I, I definitely used to believe a lot of these myths. I thought bilingual meant from birth, pretty much perfect in both languages. Um, and it took me a long time to identify myself as bilingual. And mm -hmm. it was interesting, even recently, sometime within the past year or two, 
having a conversation with my dad and kind of coming out as, you know, I'm bilingual and he kind of, <laughs> he kind of seemed taken aback like, wow, you're bilingual, but but no, I I really think that we we need to that bilingual is kind of an inclusive term and there are a lot of ways to be bilingual. Yeah, and I think that this is one of the the topics in in the bilingual in the bilingualism seminars that we have taught or we have experienced as grad students in this discipline is the idea that uh, I I used to think of bilingualism as a categorical phenomenon, sort of like you're one, you're the other. But then when you when you think about it more than a spectrum, it, it makes it makes sense. It's easier because some days you're going to be very much on the in my case, the Spanish side, and sometimes they're going to be very much on the English side. Like if I just talk to my parents on Skype for a little while, and then I'm just turning around and talking to my husband, and I talk to him in English, I know those first words in English are not going to be great. They're going to be very um, accented in a way, and maybe like the structure of what I'm saying doesn't make a lot of sense. But yeah, that's it. It's just like, it's, and you, you need to accept that, that it's just not going to be similarly moving one. And to move away from this categorical visualization of bilingualism and think about it more as like you're on the spectrum and you go back and forth. Yeah. What do you think, Lauren? Yeah, it just it sounds like a lot of things I can relate to. A lot of bilinguals or multilinguals that I know are very hard on themselves. And, but you know, I have never met someone who, you know, would be, would get at feeling and all of the kind of studies that I do in more than one language. Everyone um, kind of has some level of, you know, eccentricity in their, <laughs> in their languages. Um, and I always, you know, I have you know, a PhD and speak Spanish every day at home and have, you know, for geez, most of my life now. <laughs> um, and so if, if I don't feel, you know, perfect, who, who are these people that do feel like they're perfect in both of their languages yeah. and you just come to the conclusion that, you know, these, these people don't actually exist right and i think sometimes you can find balanced bilinguals but in my experience the most balanced bilinguals that i have found are people who work in translation or interpreting and that um that makes sense right like some of them constantly switching languages and they have to further explore different domains or they actually work on you know like the health domain right and they're constantly learning about those um the vocabulary and different things in in, that, in both languages because they have to for work purposes. But like Lauren has said before, normally bilingualism is more like domain specific. So there's certain aspects of your life are in one language and other aspects are in the other. So yeah, this idea of perfect bilingualism doesn't quite exist. And it took a while for me too. I just, I really wanted to be that perfect bilingual. And that's probably why I gotta move away from that and just accept that. Even the, the people who you might hear and you're like, oh my God, this person is so fluent in both languages. They will not identify as bilingual either. Okay, so do we want to move on to talk about terminology sure so so yeah i can get started with that so um we just want to talk about some of the labels that we might be using in future episodes and different types of bilingualism bilinguals and so for instance um what is the difference between bilingual and multilingual right who's considered multilingual and who's considered bilingual so bilingual again with the this by prefix is the idea that you speak two languages right you speak you you understand or you write in both languages Versus multilingual, multilingual would be once you, 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 you have passed these two languages, right? So when you speak three, four, five, six, and so on, uh, you're probably considered multilingual. Yeah, theoretically, there's, there's not much you know, distinction. So we'll kind of use those um, terms interchangeably, but that's basically the difference. Bi means two and multi means, means more. 
Um, we all, you also might hear us say uh, simultaneous bilingualism versus sequential bilingualism, and those are you know the normal usages of those words. If someone is a simultaneous bilingual, that means that they learned both of their languages simultaneously at the same time. Um, so my daughter is definitely a simultaneous bilingual. She's been hearing Spanish and English since the day she was born, and you know she only has like. 10 words right now, and she has some in English and some in Spanish. So she is certainly uh, on the simultaneous end of the spectrum. Uh, and then in contrast to that, you have sequential bilingualism, which means that you learn your two or more languages in sequence. So you learn one and then the other. That would be someone like me. So I learned English first, and then later I learned Spanish. Yeah. So um, then we can talk also about early and late bilingualism. And this is a label that has to do with uh, when you started being exposed to these languages in life. So early bilingualism would be early in your life and then late would be later. So for instance, in my case, I'm a late bilingual because I, I started being exposed to English mostly later on. So I wasn't exposed to it from the beginning. But then you also have people who are early bilinguals. And, and this could fall also within the, the simultaneous bilingual uh, definition too. Yeah, I, th I think... I don't know what you've seen. The ages of the cutoff yeah. kind of always differ, but somewhere usually around um, puberty. So a right. lot of times like age 12 or something like that is kind of the cutoff for considered late. But again, there, it's not like a hard and fast line where it's like today you're an early bilingual and tomorrow you're a late bilingual. Um, okay, and another kind of distinction of different kinds of bilinguals uh, is the term heritage speaker versus second language learner. So these, these relate to the order of acquisition usually. So if using the United States and Spanish and English as an example, a heritage speaker is someone who grew up speaking Spanish at home but lives in the U.S. So probably most of their schooling was in English, most of their surrounding community was English speaking, and most likely eventually English becomes their dominant language, right? even though Spanish was their first language. That's a heritage speaker. Uh, on the other hand, a second language learner uh, is someone whose native language is the majority language. So my native language is English. I grew up in the U.S. Um, that's the majority language of the U.S. And then I learn Spanish as a second language, which is not the majority language of my community. And I learned that language through school, not um, so much in, in my community where I live and grew up. And then, so a lot of terms you'll hear that kind of sound the same are dominant language, first language, and native language. Um, a lot of times these can be the same language, but they aren't necessarily. Um, so for me, dominant language, first language, and native language are all the same. They're all English. But for example, if for a heritage speaker, their first language was Spanish, but then eventually later in life, their dominant language might shift to be English. And dominant can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. It can mean the language you feel more proficient in, the language you use more often, the language you use in more contexts. Um, you know, there's kind of a lot of ways to quantify 
language dominance. And I don't think there's total agreement on how to define dominant language, um, but that does not necessarily have to be your first or native language. Exactly. I think, in, in, and again, like Lauren said, this depends on, on where you're at personally, because um, my native language is Spanish, but I have used English so much for work purposes that sometimes I feel like it's easier for me to type an email in English that I would have to do in Spanish. And then uh, we're going to talk about bicultural versus bilingual. We see this a lot, I think, uh, with heritage speakers. Uh, sometimes heritage speakers don't, they don't end up being as fluent in the heritage language for different reasons, uh, but they do go on and practice a lot of uh, cultural aspects from that heritage language. They might cook that food and they might celebrate um, festivities that are typical from that particular culture. So they could be considered bicultural because they truly feel, and if you ask them, they may be like, oh, I'm Mexican-American, right? But I don't speak Spanish. So I am bicultural in a way. They will pass that on to their children, most likely, but they don't consider themselves bilingual. So again, bicultural doesn't guarantee that you might be bilingual. And I think it's worth adding another one here. Um, Lauren, I don't know what you think about receptive bilingual, because I think that plays an important role. Yeah. Uh, do you want to talk about what is what a receptive bilingual is? Sure. Um, receptive bilingual is usually used as in, in contrast to productive bilingual, and it, it means that you can understand one of your languages, but you don't necessarily feel comfortable producing it in speech or in writing. So it's a little bit easier to hear and understand the language than it is to produce it for most people. And so those can be called receptive bilinguals or passive bilinguals. And, and that happens a lot with heritage speakers or you know kids who grow up in bilingual households, especially if their parents speak the minority language and the majority language. Once their kid figures out, hey, my mom also speaks English, I can just speak to her in English, then they they don't see much of a need to produce the minority language anymore. So that, that can lead to receptive bilingualism, which I think is what you were getting at. Yeah, exactly. And again, where if you think about the spectrum, you're still bilingual. A lot of people will not consider themselves so bilingual because, oh, I can only understand Korean, but I can write it or or it even. And I'm like, well, you're still bilingual. Some like you're you're still able to understand the languages. So in a way, you're still bilingual, and that's an asset for sure. All right, so we're gonna leave it for today. Um, we gave you a lot of concepts, but you can always get back, go back to this episode, and if you have questions about the the etymology, etc. But yeah, I think we we're ready to let you go today. Thank you so much for listening to our, our podcast. Ciao. Hasta If you ever have questions, please go to the homepage in our website and click on the link for questions. We will get back to you as soon as we can. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And stay tuned for another episode of Multilingual Mamas.